0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalms one nineteen, one twenty nine through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. It seemed fitting to uh, spend our final uh, bit of summer in the Psalms, in uh, the granddaddy of all Psalms, uh, Psalm 119, Book 5. It's it's a long one. And uh, if you've been with us through the whole series, I hope you've enjoyed a fraction of how much I have. Uh, next week, we're going to start looking at uh, First Thessalonians, the, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter. And we're going to be looking at how Christians interact with culture. So we're going to be talking about counter- counterculture. But today we're in Psalm 119. I invite you to turn there in a copy of scriptures. So, growing up, it was uh, the dreaded A word. Now, we're not talking about adultery, and we're not talking about a swear word. It was something else. Uh, It was a uh, malaise that would settle over especially teenagers whose who heard a lot of chapels, you could tell they were affected by uh, their eyes. Their eyes were dull, and their body language was, was bored and slouching. And, and once this, this A word set in, there was really almost no amount of preaching that could dislodge it. I have a theory about apathy. I think it's a defense mechanism. I think it's a defense mechanism of somebody who is, is plunged into familiarity with something without the commitment. I think it is a, a way that um, they, they can't rise to the content that they're receiving. And so instead, they just say, you know what, I, I'm not going to rise to this. Instead, I'm just going to say, why bother? It's just safer, which is really a dangerous place to be. But apathy is not, hear me teens, this is not a teenage condition. This afflicts anybody who's called to action over and over and just feels like they can't comply. It can affect us. Now, the writer of Psalm 119 is is anything but apathetic. What can you say about somebody who spends 176 verses writing about the same subject? He set out to take every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 of them, and then write eight couplets per letter, all right? And every single one of them says, ref- references God's law in some way. You know, I, I, it's almost apple season. I like apples. I like them a lot. And, and I, I started to say like, well, what if I wrote a poem with 26 letters of the alphabet? Uh, no, no. What if I did 16 lines per letter? And, and I started to do it. And uh, then I abandoned it, and, and, and so I let ChatGPT take a crack at it. <laughs> Want to hear a sample? Here we go. Amidst the orchard's vibrant hue awaits a fruit so crisp and true. Autumn's touch paints trees with grace. Apples blush a rosy embrace. Aromas dance in the gentle air Alluring senses with flavors rare Etc, etc, etc Now, I think I've spotted a chink In our future overlords' armor In case you're wondering That's bad poetry That is bad poetry So we're going to have to challenge them To like a good poetry duel But but what would you say About somebody writing about apples Or about 176 verses About the same thing Well, I think you could say That this person has an intense love for the law of God. And this is captured in verses 129 and 136. Now, we're looking at the P portion of of the law, but we're going to see wonder and weeping. Let's read what the psalmist says. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. And my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And in in those verses there, wonderful is the P word. It actually begins the sentence. And tears or channels is the P word. This expresses the psalmist's conviction and reaction, his conviction about the word of God, and then his reaction to those who don't share it. Wonderful is is a word that we use so often that we don't think about it, but but do. Wonderful. In other words, it is out of this world. It's supernatural. It is out of the ordinary. It is miraculous. This is the same word that was used about God's wonders that he performed against Egypt. In other words, it's a way that when God steps into the ordinary and he does something outside what you would expect, that is God's word. It's wonderful. Now, what do you do with something that's wonderful? The psalmist says that my soul keeps it recognizing its out-of-the-world, amazing, miraculous value, he says, I'm going to preserve it. I'm not going to add to it. I'm not going to take away from it. I'm not going to dilute it. I'm going to keep it in the very center of my being, my soul. It's almost as if my soul is a cabinet. He says, I'm going to put it away. Elsewhere in Psalm 119, you hear verses like, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or how should a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? He takes it and puts it in his soul. The psalmist's reaction in verse 136 to the law being undervalued, in other words, people who don't recognize the the wonder of this law, is, is actually tears. It's almost as the reaction of a chef that would have, if he saw a home cook, take a whole vial of premium saffron and shake it and toss it into his soup. The chef would like cry out in horror and say, how could you do that to something that precious? My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The psalmist's enthusiasm is is really apparent here, but here's the problem. His enthusiasm seems a little bit alien to us. We Don't weep over people not keeping God's word. We don't write long poems praising it. Uh, At least most of us don't. Uh, If you're honest with yourself, maybe even some parts of God's law embarrasses you. About those, those times where you'd say, like, we could call them the less comely parts. In other words, it's like, yeah, in context, when explained in the scale of things, it has an explanation, but it also provides fodder for somebody who wishes to mock. And you say, I, I, I'm a little bit, you know, this is the law we're talking about, after all. Uh, complete with, you know, not squaring your beard and not boiling Baby goats in their mother's milk and fungus on the walls and what to do with your unmarried daughter and even slavery. So there are parts where you're kind of like, this is the law, but this is what he is praying, praising. Now I imagine there's a part of you that even now is gearing up to be scolded for not loving the word enough, or on the other hand, is readying its defense for just not trying anymore. In other words, you're gonna have one of two reactions. You're either gonna say, I'll do better. Or I, I'm not even going to try at all. What I'd ask you for just a second is can you set that aside? Can you, can you set aside the try more and set aside the, the I'm not even going to try reactions and just say to that part of you, just give me some space here for a second. And let's look at what the psalmist says about um, intense love of God's word. You see, the psalmist recognized God's role in helping him benefit from the law. And so he asked him repeatedly, he asked God repeatedly to do what only he can do. So my question today is, how does God help us with our spiritual apathy? All right? So if my love's not as intense as it ought to be, how does God help me with that? Let's read the verses uh, 131 and 132. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. God helps us with our apathy by mercifully or graciously giving us spiritual satisfaction. The psalmist here taps into the language about deprived creatures to picture how much he longs for God's commandments. The psalmist is the baby bird with its mouth open to his mother. The psalmist is the guinea pig that hears the rustle of lettuce. The psalmist is a thirsty man out there panting for water. The psalmist is the sailor on a dead ocean just waiting for a breeze. That's how much he longs. But who will satisfy his longings? That's what he asked God for. He cries out in the form of lament, which we've heard some laments. You may remember that a lament is a cry for God to move to action. And here's his cry Turn to me and be gracious. In other words, look at me, God. Take notice of me. Have mercy. Satisfy my longing. From his lament, we learn who holds the key to spiritual satisfaction. Who does? God does. Your ability to be blessed in any way by His Word is in His hands. Your desire to be blessed is actually a really, really good starting place. And even your recognition of your apathy is a good start. Because can the God who satisfies spiritual hunger also help you gain a taste for spiritual food? Of course, He can. Go ahead and ask. You can make your request with the knowledge that this is not some kind of special request for God. Notice that the psalmist says, as is your way with those who love your name. I I love that. As is your way with those who love your name. The psalmist is just saying, I'm just one of your people. This is how you treat them. And so, be emboldened this week to ask and demand for God's attention as one who loves his name. It doesn't have to be pretty or eloquent because desperate creatures are not, are not uh, dignified. Cheap, weak, bark, call upon, yell, cry for nourishment. This, this, this is the kind of cry that God answers. And he's the kind of God who answers that for those who love his name. And so God helps our apathy by answering us in mercy and giving us a desire and satisfaction That's his first appeal. The psalmist continues with another appeal. We see this in verses 133 and 134. He says, keep steady my steps. My steps is the P word, okay? It actually starts the sentence. According to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. There are two requests in this one. Number one is an obedient heart. It's difficult for us to imagine here, us twenty first century Christians sitting at three hundred sixteen Red Mill Road, the amount of stability that the law would bring to the psalmist living in a theocracy. It was the foundation stone of civilization. It was it was not just religious. It was it was civil, it was moral, it was religious, it, it was all of these things. And And he knew that when that was firm, civilization and God's blessing would be over the people. But if that began to fray, civilization would unravel. It reminds me a little bit of Reptavia's feelings toward the traditions on the fiddler of the roof, if you remember it. If you were to take away our traditions, we would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. You know, it's kind of like if you take away our law, our whole civilization Unwind. And that's why he's saying, steady my steps. You may recall, if you were with us last week in Psalm 81, that walking has to do with just, with obedience. Um, this is a verse we looked at last week in, in Psalm 81. And this is actually all throughout Scripture. This is just kind of like, pick one. All right? Um, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. So he knows that steadying his steps according to his promise that this is the path to blessing. And uh, blessing is the pathway to, to blessing as well. Or excuse me, blessing is, excuse me, obedience is the path to blessing. So from, also from Psalm 81, we heard that, that when you walk in his ways, when you're steady in his path, he would give military victory. Israel's mission to the nations would be fulfilled. Even the abundance of grain, all of these things would happen. And so the psalmist's request for God to steady his steps by giving him an obedient heart reveals an intention to regulate his life by God's word. But he's troubled because he sees two obstacles. Those obstacles are iniquity in his own heart and oppression from outside him. And he asks God about these two. So he says, request number two, remove obstacles from my obedience. Don't let iniquity get a dominion over me. You see, sin is a destabilizer. It puts you in a precarious position. It erodes your relationships, your relationship with others, your relationship with God. And this psalmist exhibited a a godly fear that that might happen, that he might be ruled by sin. He heeded the warning that one of the first humans, uh, if you go all the way back to Genesis, Cain, uh, did not listen to, where God himself came and warned Cain about what the nature of sin is. God said this, if you do well, and that has to do with Cain bringing an acceptable sacrifice, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, that's a scary picture. Straight from a nightmare, you open a door and something horrible jumps out at you, latches onto you, dominates you, and rules over you. Well, the psalmist wisely says, I wish to root sin out in my heart before it can establish dominion in my life. And he enlists God's help to do it. He says, God, would you do that? Would you keep me free from it? A second obstacle is not within him, but outside. So the psalmist feels some sort of pressure from outside. so much so that he feels like he needs to ask for, the word is ransom or redemption. So he says, God, can you step in here and pay whatever price necessary to free me from the oppression that I am feeling? This is really kind of a glimpse in his, into his world. And, and many commentators think that this is David writing, but, but some of this makes me think that this is probably not David writing. Uh, whoever it is, this is a very young man and he is surrounded by skeptics. Just look at his world. Take away from me scorn and contempt even though there are princes sitting plotting against me, the insolent smear me with lies, and they've dug pits for me, they don't live according to your law. And so here we see scorn and contempt for God's law. We have leaders seeking ways to undermine God's rule. We've got people lying about his intentions. And, and we've got TikTok videos with bad logic setting traps for those who are not prepared. Did, did we just time warp here? It's like he was it was like he was living today, or did things not change all that much? You know, many of you know what that feels like to be living in like a, a hostile environment, you know, where it feels like somebody is 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 oppressing you, that they have got it out for you, and you really cannot figure out why, except that they are against you. And and that can do something to your soul. It can make you feel like, I I can't go on with this anymore. It can be a serious constraint on your stability and your, your pursuit of obeying God. And so the psalmist reminds us here that, number one, this is nothing new. And number two, God's interested in clearing those obstacles. So here's our application. Don't forget to invite God into the fray. It would be unwise to do so because he is the one who can give you an obedient heart and can actually somehow dispel the oppression that you are feeling from outside. Now, if you've been tracking with an open Bible, you may have wondered why we skipped verse 130. It's funny talking about these numbers. It's almost like you're dealing in large denominations, right? Verse 130 here, and... uh, that's because 130 and 135 are a pair, kind of like 129 and 136. It reveals something that I, I suspect is, is the most encouraging thing in my fight against my apathy. Let's read those two verses. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So these verses are linked. They're both referring to light and to shining. Both refer to lowly people. Speaks of the simple person and the servant. And unfolding is just another way of saying teaching. And some translations actually have it that way. That phrase unfolding gives us just a really, really cool image. The psalmist would be aware of God's law as being in a scroll. And he's saying if the understanding or the light is to come out of this, what do you need to do? Open the book. And so understanding remains dark while it's rolled up. But what happens when it's unrolled? Light bursts out. And and these verses show us that light is a figure for understanding. So two very ready applications. Number one, in order to understand God's word, you have to open it. But number two, just thinking about the way that light hits us, you have to stay there until your eyes adjust to the light. In other words, exposure and time are necessary. You kind of think of the the feeling that you have when when you're walking into a very, very bright room from a dark place. What do you have to do? You have to stop for a little bit and adjust. And when the light of God's word hits us, we have to stay there until we adjust to it. Furthermore, understanding is not for everyone. It's it's for a certain kind of person. It's for the simple person, also called the servant in verse 135. So this points to another application. Only the teachable benefit from us. So in other words, if I'm arrogant or if I've got an agenda, I am not going to receive the understanding in the light of God. C.S. Lewis has a really memorable account of uh, the skeptical dwarves in, in the last battle. And they are actually in what was a stable, but they're sitting in Aslan, the Christ figure's land. So they're in rolling hills and beautiful, but they think they're in the stable because they've refused to be taken in by this hocus pocus. And, uh, and so Aslan, at the behest of one of the characters, makes a feast and appear before them on their knees. And it's a very English feast with with pies and pastries and ices and truffles and and, and good wine. And uh, they're hungry, so they begin eating it. And they declare that it's stuff they would find in a stable. Straw and cabbage leaves. At one point, uh, one of the dwarves say, "Um, ugh, fancy that we'd be drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. And this is Lewis's prisoner in your own mind concept. And so this, this shows us who gets to benefit from this, simple people who are teachable according to God's word. Now, I don't want you to be troubled if certain scripture doesn't burst upon you with this effect. You know, sometimes there will be days where you open up your Bible or you close off your listening, and that light just didn't burst forth. You, you may either not understand it or you may be in a, a part of Scripture that just doesn't, you know, speak to you. Um, as Bible teacher Jen Wilkin likes to say, uh, sit with it. Don't be afraid to let that tension stand. You know, it, it's no shame to, to pull off, you know, look at a study note or pull off a commentary or ask a wise friend. But also, don't do that too quickly, Why don't you go to the God of light first and say, would you shine your light on this? Because light is his. Also, be aware that all scripture is profitable, but it may be that not all parts of scripture are as immediately profitable as you read it. In other words, if you have a verse like, um, for all things work together for good to those who love God. I mean, that's just like a concentrate uh, Expression that you immediately say, wow, I'm going to chew on that. But then, you know, there there are also verses like this. This is the copy of the letter that Tat and I, the governor of the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king in Ezra. Well, you could be reading that and you're going like, well, sometimes you have to take this and you realize that this is a piece of the history that is part of the whole, that preserved the law for God's people, that the Messiah was going to come from. But at that point, light may not just be streaming out at you. And there are ways that you can, you can adjust that. But uh, the critical contribution, I think, of Psalm 119 is this. There is an unbreakable link between what we see in verse 30, the light of the word, and in verse 1345, the light of God's faith. In other words, one sees the blessing of God in the light of the word. So a humble reader who unfolds God's words, exposing themselves to the light of the word, taking the time, asking God, finds something very extraordinary. They expected to see the light of the word, but all of a sudden they're basking in the light of the Lord. The face of God is shining on them. I love the... uh, quote by Machier, the light of the word becomes the light of the Lord. You know, this is really a staggering truth that that we get God's blessing by taking the time to open the word and adjust to its light. You know, so this week, if you feel like your spiritual temperature is, your thermostat's low, what do you do? Open up the word. Ask God to show you. Do you not feel the smile of God? Open the word and let its light shine on you. And the testimony of Scripture is that its power to do this is so evident. Look at some of the the passages. Just three I'd like just to consider. The first verse in Luke 24, Jesus Christ gives two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus the, the Sunday school lesson for the ages. Jesus Christ himself opened up Scriptures and pointed out how all of it pointed to him. And They say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You know, we we think that if we had firsthand knowledge, that maybe if I was there, maybe if I saw the transfiguration. But Peter looks at his experience seeing the transfiguration and said, we have the prophetic word made more sure In Scripture, we have things that even angels have desired to look into. And the scriptures that Jesus opened and taught these disciples is the same scripture that we have before us. It also helps with this kingdom transfer. Uh, These are God's words to the Apostle Paul when he was just about converted. And, And he said, This is what your witness is going to do. Just listen to these words your witness is going to open up their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light. So there's a transfer of a kingdom from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And we have this witness. We have the witness that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have the witness that the wages of sin is death. We have the witness that God has shown his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We have his witness that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We have the witness that whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have the witness that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, these words that we have mediate eternal life. It also reveals salvation. This is uh, Paul's, Paul's protege, Timothy. He said, Timothy, you from childhood have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Well, what were the sacred writings of Timothy? The Old Testament, the Psalms. He said, you are acquainted with them which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy's scripture was the Old Testament and in it he could see God's plan that was culminated and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when we open up the light of the word, all of a sudden we find out that we see the light of God when we open up the light of the word, we actually see the life that God can give us. We may ask ourselves a question, but what if, what if I miss it? What if I, I don't see it? This is amazingly encouraging. Look at verse 135 again. He says, make your face shine upon your servant, and you, God, teach me your statutes. God himself teaches the humble reader. So when I open up this book and say, God, I don't understand, give me light. God himself, and we know that's through the Holy Spirit who shows us Christ, but God himself becomes my teacher. Amazing. So tomorrow morning, we've got a couple hundred people in here. We're going to start our week a hundred different ways. We're going to wake up, and because of the situation and all the factors that play, that are unique to us. We are going to wake up and our spiritual thermostats are gonna be at different places. But there's one thing that every single one of us can bank on. That as we hope to benefit and be in proper relation to God's word, we have a God who's king over all we are and all we experience. And he is, he's ready to help those who say, God, would you please help me love your word Intensely Would you give me that longing? Will you do something about this apathy? Because from the scripture and from the psalmist petitions we find out that satisfaction is in God's hands. We find out that my obedient heart and freedom from the oppression that is coming in me from and out is in God's hands, and we find out that God gives light to the humble, and He comes and He teaches us Himself. So what I'd like to do as we close here is I would like for us to just take a moment as the musicians come. I'd like for us to, as we did last week, just take a moment, and I want you to to bow your head. And no matter where on that spectrum you find yourself to be, I want you to ask God to give you light, give you obedience, and help him open up the wonders of his word. Let's just take a moment to do that. Oh God, we pray that you would hear us for Christ's sake. Amen.